Well, good evening and God bless each one. It's really good to be here. Uh, thank you for coming. It's a beautiful spring evening. And I've been blessed by your singing. You, uh, wonderful voices. God bless you for that. Uh, let's turn in the Bible to the book of First um, John chapter 4. Just a few verses there. And by way of introduction, um, we, we do live in Lancaster County. My name is John Petersheim, and my wife is Anna. And Alan is my cousin, like he said. Our mothers were sisters, and have known him for a long time. And Sylvia Ruth is here this evening. Thanks for coming. Uh, be Alan's sister. Okay, First John chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 6. And it says, We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. And he that knoweth not, he that loveth not, knoweth not God. And here could be maybe one of the most powerful statements in Holy Writ. It says, for God is love. For God is love. Tonight I'd like to talk about some of the things. Um, well, recently there was a man in our church who gave a short devotional. And uh, at the beginning of his talk, he asked, what really is the meaning of life? And what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? And um, I, I puzzled over that and pondered over it. And I began to think, uh, if we want to understand the meaning of life, we'll have to realize what it is that brings meaning to life. Some of the things, components, the articles that give meaning to life. And I think as we understand that, we can begin to realize what the meaning of life actually is, human life. And so let's look at a few of these things that bring meaning to life. The first one, I think, is just the wonder of life itself. The wonder and the amazement of life itself. Life is to be celebrated every single day. And uh, I love this time of year when springtime comes and the earth renews itself. It almost seems as though God draws near and kisses the earth and the earth responds with life. We see that flowers bloom and trees shoot forth their leaves. We see the young give birth to an or young animals, uh, lambs running through pastures. Uh, every, every blade of, of grass will glisten in the morning dew. And I think of the universe and the cosmological wonder around us, the, the stars in the heaven and the incredible universe, the galaxies as we know it. And um, I, I believe that every, there's galaxies unknown to mankind. There's galaxies we'll never discover in our, in our human experience here. A world's unknown to man, and yet every galaxy is filled with stars and planets, and they're working in a symmetrical, timeless, perfect manner. Everyone will never see them. And I believe that every one of those stars and every planet and every galaxy beyond galaxy, every one of those is going to shine and twinkle in honor and reverence of the one who created them. The wonder, the amazement of life. Life is to be celebrated every single day. And all creation will rise up and praise its creator. But that's the way God ordered it. That's the way God ordered it. Uh, the second thing that brings meaning to life, the second article here, is a sense of belonging, belongingness. And everyone wants, every person on earth wants a place to belong. We want to have, we want this world to have a place for us, a place in this world for us. So a sense of belonging, and it's important as we raise children to offer this to our children, their own place at the table their own toothbrush and toothpaste and their socks and things like that, their sock drawers, is very important. I have a story here that was written some years ago, and it was published in the New York Times, and it's a human interest story. And the title of the story is, He Would, he would Like to Belong. He Would Like to Belong. And uh, it's told about a small boy who was riding on a downtown bus, and it says, There he sat, 
huddled close to a lady in a gray suit, and naturally everyone thought he belonged to her. Little wonder then that when he rubbed his dirty shoes against the woman sitting on the other side of him, she said to the lady in the gray suit, Pardon me, but would you please make your little boy take his feet off the seat? His shoes are getting my dress dirty. The woman in gray blushed, and then giving the boy a little shove, she said, He's not my boy. I never even saw him before. The lad squirmed uneasily. He was such a tiny little fellow, his feet dangling off the seat. He lowered his eyes and tried desperately to hold back a sob. I'm sorry I got your dress dirty, he said to the woman. I didn't mean to. Well, that's all right, she answered, a little bit embarrassed. And then since his eyes were still fastened upon her, she said, Are you going somewhere alone? Yes, he nodded. I always go alone. There's no one to go with me. I don't have a mommy or a daddy. They're both dead. I live with Aunt Clara, but she says that Aunt Mildred ought to help take care of me part of the time. So when she gets tired of me and wants me to go some and wants to go someplace, she sends me over to stay with Aunt Mildred. Oh, said the woman, are you on your way to Aunt Mildred's now? Yes, the boy continued, but sometimes Aunt Mildred isn't home. I sure hope she's there today because it looks like rain, and I don't want to be out in the street if it rains. The woman felt a little lump in her throat as she said, but you're a very small boy to be shuffled around like this. Well, I don't mind, he said. I never get lost, but I do get lonesome sometimes. So when I see someone that I think I would really like to belong to, I sit real close and snuggle up and pretend I really do belong to them. I was playing that I belonged to this other lady when I got your dress dirty. I forgot about my feet. The woman put her arms around the little fellow and snuggled him up so close that it almost hurt. He simply wanted to belong to someone, and deep in her heart she wished that he did belong to her. This little boy, in his most artless and childlike fashion, had expressed a universal need, and that is it doesn't matter who we are or how old we are or where, or where we live, everyone simply wants to belong. So a sense of belonging brings meaning to life. The next article I have, the next component that would bring meaning to life is truth. Truth adds meaning to life. And truth is, um, truth is probably a quest that most people go on through their teenage years. Uh, teenagers really search for truth. What is life all about? What am I here for? What's my purpose? And what is, what is right? What is wrong? And what am I really doing here? And uh, truth can be... Um, it can be deceiving, especially for teenagers who are desperately searching for truth. There can be the appearance of truth. And uh, what I've liked, it, it comes in many forms. And one of the things that we have to watch truth would be in the forms of spirituality. Um, we, we can have the appearance of being spiritual without being spiritually true. You can be spiritual without being spiritually true. There's a couple of examples um, I don't know if anybody from here likes to attend seminars, but when we uh, go to seminars, there's always some uh, gist, there's always teaching, like one thrust of teaching that's presented. And um, I've seen people leave seminars on kind of a high. You you leave a seminar and you're really excited for a while. You you talk and you talk about the things you've heard. But at that seminar, if the basis of the teaching isn't truth, a person can leave that seminar and in a couple of weeks wonder what he was even excited about in the first place. If the basis of the teaching wasn't truth, and the same way with our, with our search for what is spiritual, we can be very, very spiritual without being spiritually true. Um, music is another place of deception in our quest for truth. There's, um, if we think about the Christian hymns that we sing from a book, Christian hymns were supposed to were written as a way and a means of communicating truth and doctrine. When the old hymns were written, it was in a way they were the intention was for a way of communicating truth and doctrine. 
But today's culture would focus on writing songs that sound good for the moment. And it's really attractive and it appeals to people. But music can be a, a deceptive factor as well. So truth brings meaning to life. Another component that would bring meaning to life would be the idea of security. We like, we like the idea of security, whether it's uh, a home to go to tonight, a place where we can rest, where it's ours, we're secure, safe from the elements, we're warm and uh, comfortable, and also our finances. We like the idea of being financially secure as well. But there's an even greater sense of security that we can have, and that's the security of an eternal home, a home in, in heaven uh, with God forever. So security brings meaning to life. And another component, another factor that would bring meaning to life would be the idea of forgiveness. We, we, like, to, we like to be forgiven. And uh, we don't like to, to talk about exclusivity, but I think all religions would claim cl- exclusivity in one form or another. They would claim that they have something that, that others don't. There's one aspect of Christianity that can claim exclusivity that other religions cannot and other belief systems, belief systems cannot. And that is the idea of forgiveness. Of um, Christianity can offer you forgiveness and then the assurance thereof as well. And other religions can't do that. Most religions, you don't know if you've ever done enough, if you've, if you've prayed enough or been good enough or done enough. In some belief systems, you have to live a good life so that you can be reincarnated to a better life in your next life and so forth. But Christianity remains exclusive in the fact that it offers you forgiveness and then the assurance thereof. There's a story about something that happened some years ago, many years ago, and um, we probably all have heard of Billy Graham, the evangelist who dedicated most of his life to crossing and crisscrossing the United States and even the globe, uh, preaching the gospel of Christ. And he was, um, Billy Graham and a few other religious leaders were in uh, post-war Germany back in the 1940s, shortly after World War II had come and just devastated Germany. And uh, they, w- they were there and they presented a talk they presented the gospel to some of the, the leaders in Germany. And one of the men that was there was Konrad Adenauer, and he was the new chancellor of Germany. He was the one who was put into position to try to, to bring this country back into something after Hitler had just devastated it. So Billy Graham was there, and he presented his talk to these people, and he, he presented the gospel of Christ. And uh, after the talk, the luncheon was over, Konrad uh, Adenauer went back to his office, and he sat there for a long time, and after a while, he summoned his aide to bring Billy Graham into the room. And so Billy Graham went, and uh, uh, the Chancellor of Germany stood up, and he said, he said, Sir, do you really believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Billy Graham thought for a minute, and he said he was taken aback because it's a, a shocking question from a, a state's leader who he didn't know his heart. So Billy Graham thought for a moment, and he said, Sir, if I did not believe... In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I would have no gospel left to preach. No gospel left to preach. Uh, Conrad Adenauer thought for a moment, and he walked over to the window, and from his office window, he could see out across the, the city of Berlin and into the fields and the countryside beyond. And what he seen was a world just ruined and devastated by the effects of war. And he looked for a long moment through the window, and he finally turned back and he said, he said, Mr. Graham, Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. I know of no other hope for mankind. A powerful statement from a, from a world leader. So Christianity, the gospel of Christ, offers you forgiveness and the assurance thereof. And it's exclusive in that claim. Another thing that would bring meaning to life is that of relationships. 
relationships, I think, are the first clue to the meaning of life. And uh, I, whether we have one friend or whether we have many friends, there's people who can go somewhere and just make friends, and there's people who kind of go through life with just one single friend. But whether you have many or just one, it's important to maintain that relationship and, um, and stay friends for life. Relationships are meant to be forever. If we think about the God that we serve, and uh, we can realize that because of the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, God was a being who was in relationship and in communication. He was a being in relationship before he ever designed his first person. He understood relationship. He understood communication because of the the triune Godhead, the one in three, the three in one. So God was a being in relationship before he ever designed the worlds and his first person. So relationships are vital to God. And the last, the last article I have here, the thing that would bring meaning to life, would be love. The idea of love. Love brings meaning to life. And it's very important to notice that every, every one of these aspects... Um, has no effect whatsoever apart from God. The wonder of life, a sense of belonging, the truth, security, forgiveness, relationships and love, apart from God would have no meaning and uh, no worth at all. So what is love? What do you think of when you think of love? And uh, we could think of a lot of things. We could talk about how it's, it can't be measured, it's enormous, and the width and the breadth and all this and that. But let's talk about love in a practical sense tonight. Something that applies to you and I as we raise our families, as we journey, progress our way through this life. I believe that love is the strongest force in the world. Love is the most powerful force in the world, and everything is hinged upon love. Think about it this way. Um, when God made creation, when he made the heavens and the earth and the universe as we know it, he made a separate entity from himself. And the Bible says that all of these things will perish. The earth will burn up with fervent heat. And all of these things will, will be gone. Isaiah, I forget what it says, something about, um, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall pass away and not be remembered, things like that. So the earth and all of creation as we know it will pass away. But humanity will not or the souls in humanity. So um, if you took... So that means that humanity is the crown of God's creation. It's the jewel of, of God's creation. So if you took humanity away from creation, creation would lose its meaning to God. It would have no meaning left to God. If you took humanity away from creation, creation would, would basically lose its meaning and have no purpose left for God. And in the same sense, if you took love away from people then people would lose their meaning as well. If love wouldn't exist, we would have no meaning left. When God was thinking about creating the world, before he did, um, God was a God who understood love. Because of the Trinity, again, there was more than one being involved, so love could exist. So love is the strongest force in the world, and everything is hinged upon love, and and the realm that God created is is a realm that is where love is the principal facet, the most important thing is love. And remember, the Bible says that God is love. And that doesn't mean that God designed or created, manufactured love, and then kind of shook it out so we can partake in it. He didn't shake it down across us so we can partake of it. God didn't manufacture love and put it into a store where we can go and buy it. When the Bible says that God is love, it means that the very nature and personality of God is love. 
It's intertwined. God is love. So how is love made practical in our life today? Um, I think that if you, and you've probably heard this illustration before, if you were to take a classroom of small children, maybe like the ones that were here just now, and give them a piece of paper and a pencil and ask them to write down their description of God, most of those children would write down a perfect description of their own father. So the idea is that if, if children have a kind and a loving father, they will see God as a kind and loving God. If they have a cold and a cruel father, their idea or their concept of God will be of a cold and a cruel God. So children describe or think about God in the same way that they think of the earthly father. If you were to take those little children and give them one more piece of paper and ask them to write down a description of love, I think they'd write down a perfect description of their mother this time. There's something special about a mother's love that you just don't get anywhere else in this world. A mother will always love you for your own sake and never for hers. And I think it's because of that that it's one of the most accurate portrayals of God's love to us. God will always love us for our own sake and not for his. And you don't get that anywhere else. So a mother's love is is an accurate portrayal of God's love because a mother will love you for your own sake. There was a a class of kindergarten children who were asked to write down their description or why they loved their mom. And this is, um, this is what some of them wrote. I'll just read a few of these. Uh, one wrote, she cooks, she cooks my dad's steak. She cleans the house. She makes the bed. She washes the dishes so we can eat all of the time. Because she makes me treats for my birthday. She makes our bed. She covers us up at night. Because she helps us do things. She makes food and calls us when it's supper time. Because I love her and my dad loves her a lot and my brother doesn't like to kiss her, but once my mother kissed him when he was sleeping. Um, Another one says, because she makes popcorn and she's always nice to me. Because she cooks for us. And it goes on and on. And they're they're describing why they love their mom. And it's, it's, again, it's love they don't receive anywhere else in this world. One said, I can't think of any words at all. And this could mean a lot. Maybe her idea of mom or her love was so great that it defied language. Because she is so beautiful. She hugs and kisses me and takes care of me. She's the best cook in the world. And so forth. So a mother's, a mother's love is probably the most accurate portrayal of God's love to us. Because the love, they will always love you for your own sake. It's true that a child may grow up and never remember the times that it played alone. The hours that it played alone. But it will never forget the time that it spent with its mother. When its mother took time to spend time with it. It will talk about those times. So if you ask a child to describe God, he'll describe his father. Ask that same child to, dis- to define love, and it will almost always describe its own mother. So the title of the message is The Wonder of Love. The Wonder of Love. And let's talk about some of the things. I'd like to communicate some ideas that I have, maybe through stories and, and parallels and things like that. And um, the first thing about love is that love is a response. Love is a response, but it must be learned. It's a response, but it must be learned. And it's true that a baby can be born into this world, and it is, with all the components and all the capabilities and the abilities to be able to love. But until the baby is first loved, it will never know how to. So love is a response, but it must first be learned. And love is mutual. Love is mutual. That means it must be coming in two directions at once. It's impossible for one being to have a meaningful existence by itself. Love is mutual, and it must be coming both ways. It cannot work alone. 
Number two, love must always be visible. It must always be visible. Um, let's think about our homes for a minute. If, if love is not visible in our homes, godly love between parents, between parent-to-child relationship and things like that, if our children, your children and my children, don't see love visibly, if they don't see it, true godly biblical love, I can assure you that then your children and my children are going to develop their own concept of love. And when they do, it will be things that they learn from social media, from novels and books they read and things like that. Love must always be visible in our homes at all times. True, godly, biblical love. And love must always be spoken. It must be spoken. There's a story that fascinates me. It happened many years ago at a school in Oregon. At a, uh, a grade school in the state of Oregon. And this school had a group of very dysfunctional students. Extremely dysfunc- dysfunctional students. They couldn't learn. They couldn't comprehend. And uh, the, the staff, at the end of the wits, finally hired a tutor to come in to work with ten of the worst of these children. And uh, the tutor began to work with them day after day after day and became so frustrated because they simply couldn't comprehend, they couldn't learn, they had no self-confidence whatsoever. One day in desperation, this tutor asked these, these students, he said, has no one ever told you they love you? And the room became deathly quiet. And one by one they admitted that that's, those are words they had never heard in their life. Except the one said he thinks he might have years ago, but he couldn't remember when and he couldn't remember who said it. So love must always be spoken, which takes us immediately to the next point, and that is that love demands action. Love demands action. You see, love, even after it's spoken, is only love half done. Love, even after it's spoken, remains love unfinished. It's love half done. Uh, Love always demands action. There's a little girl who wants me to comment like this. She said, my mommy tells me that she loves me, but she never has any time for me. So love demands action. It must be spoken, but it also demands action because love, even after it is spoken, remains love half done, remains love undone. And love involves trust. It involves trust. There's a story about a, um, a young man who grew up in the backwoods of South Carolina in the mountains, and times were hard down there, and life was rugged, and nobody had much of anything. But inspired by his parents, he, um, he began to seek a college scholarship, which he eventually won. And um, on the day that he left for college, his father kind of summed up all his anxieties and his worries in these words. He walked up to his son and he said, he said, I know very little about the world that you're going into, little to nothing about the world you're going into. But he said, before you go, I want you to know one thing, and that is, as you go, I trust you. I, say, I trust you. And the son never forgot those words. And he said, um, many nights on campus at college, many nights, when all the temptations of college life came calling, and just when he wanted to commit and and give in to some of those temptations, he remembered those words, I trust you, I trust you. And one day he realized that his father really meant that when he told him that. He really meant that. And he understood that his father did trust him, and he believed in him. And when that son finally realized that his father believed and trusted in him, he then believed and trusted in himself as well. So love involves trust. And love requires a willingness to listen. It, it requires a willingness to listen. Have you ever had one of your children try to talk to you and, and then grab your face and kind of turn your face back to them again? Uh, love requires a willingness to listen. Especially with children. Uh, we must give them time and, and hear what they're trying to tell us. And also, if, um, 
if people have ideas, I mean, there are, there are speakers in this world who could probably go on for hours and hours and still hold the attention of an audience. But if, if no one is willing to listen to people who have ideas, and especially as they interpret the gospel and things like that, if no one is willing to listen, all of their ideas and their dreams will die. So love requires a willingness to listen. And uh, the next one is that love means to share experiences together, especially in families. Love means to share experiences together, uh, spending time together. I'll tell you just a little bit about my, my past. Um, I grew up in the 1970s, the 1980s, and times were pretty good. Looking back, times were, were pretty good. Um, when I was a fairly small boy, my, my dad passed away and mom was left to be a widow. And she was my age. She was young when she was widowed. She had five small children. The oldest one was 12 and the youngest one was three months old. And uh, so we had some hard times as well. So times were good, but they were hard. I can understand both sides of that. And um, there's one thing I'll never forget about her, and that is that she understood that love means to share experiences together. And it didn't matter what, how hard the times were. When school left out for the summer, she would pack up her little children and take us on vacations. But never failed. And I remember, I remember those vacations, how that we, would di- we would discover mountains and seashores, and we would discover trail through the forest and all sorts of things. But in the process of all of that, we discovered something even more important than nature, we discovered an awful lot about ourselves. But most importantly, that's where we discovered each other. That's where we learned to discover each other. So love means to share experiences together, especially in family vacations. And you'll really discover each other. Love will always recognize that persons are more important than things. Persons are much more important than things. I was reading in the Bible today about the King Solomon and how that he came to the end of his life and he was the wealthiest man he had everything, all of the material goods that life had to offer, he had. Everything he, had, he wanted, he had. He wrote songs, he wrote proverbs. He had wealth and treasure that couldn't be counted or told. And what did he say at the end of his life? All is vanity. All is vanity. A chasing after the wind. Love will always recognize that persons are more important than things. And our concept of love must be that it's if we really need to understand or want to understand the concept of love, we have to understand that love then in its uh, love must be something that rises above you and it rises above me. It's greater than all of humanity. It's tra- it transcends humanity. It rises above you and it rises above me. It's bigger than us. And our, our concept of love must be that it is equally adequate. It is equally adequate and available to every person anywhere at all times in the world. After all, love belongs to God. And you and I are merely partakers of it. Love belongs to God. And it's something that rises above us. Love is a symbol of strength and not of weakness. Love is a symbol of strength and not of weakness. I've met a lot of men in my day. In my observation of people as I, as I journey through this life, there's a lot of men who don't like to reveal or display their emotions. And love to them would be a symbol of weakness. But let me assure you that love is a symbol of strength and not of weakness. So, um, so it, to, to be strong is to be tender. And to be strong is to be compassionate. To be strong is to be loving. On the other hand, it is the weak who are cruel. The weak who are unconcerned and the weak who are void of love. 
Love is a symbol of strength and not of weakness. Uh, moving on then. Love has no compulsion. There is no compulsion in love. You simply cannot force me to love you. And I can't force you to love me. There is no compulsion in love. And that's exactly what God had in mind when he, when he created this realm of love. He only wants people to come to him because they choose to. He could have made this world that everyone is ordered and, and precisely has to do what he makes them do. But that wouldn't be love. There is no compulsion in love. Uh, recently, a, a fellow in our church had a message. And as he was speaking, he talked about the fact there were some, some, some young people sitting up front who were applicants for instruction class and all. And he told them that day that there's no compelling force that should have brought you here. There's no person should have compelled you to do this, but you should have, you should have done this because you wanted to. And, um, and I think he's absolutely right. And also, as we present the gospel to people, remember there is no compulsion in, in, in the gospel of Christ. You simply cannot force someone to believe. And let's suppose for a minute that I'm an unsaved person, and you're a Christian, and you present the gospel to me in the form of a debate or an argument, and even if your worldview triumphs over my worldview, even if you win, fundamentally win the argument, I still won't believe you. You simply cannot force a person to believe. There is no compulsion in love. Love is a, is a spontaneous emotion that rises up. It rises up, uh, but you cannot force it. So um, let's turn in the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for some Bible reading. And we'll read a few of the verses. First uh, Corinthians thirteen one and says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it will profit me nothing. Love suffers long, it is kind, love envieth not, and love vaunteth not itself, it is not puffed up. Love does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, it is not easily provoked, and it thinketh no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It will bear all things, believe all things, it hopes in all things, and it endures in all things. Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, and whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And going down to the last verse, it says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So how many people in this room can understand Pennsylvania Deitch? Almost everybody. Is Pennsylvania Deitch, it's, it's a way of communicating, right? We can understand each other, we can communicate. Is it a language? Is it a language? Is it really? It's a dialect. Thank you. Pennsylvania Deitch is a dialect. It's a dialect. It's not a language. So if Pennsylvania Deitch is a dialect, that means that there's other dialects as well. We have, um, where we live, there's a lot of Mennonites around us, and they all have their own version of Pennsylvania Deitch. If you go to Indiana or Ohio, they'll have Indiana Deitch and Ohio Deitch and things like that. Uh, Pennsylvania Deitch is a dialect. That means it's taken from a language. Right? It's not a language, but it's taken from a language. So what is the language that it's taken from? German. That's right. It's taken from German. So listen to this. If you, if you, were, to take, if you were to eradicate German, get rid of German altogether, if you could, you would then subsequently remove the dialect or the source from by which you would take away the source 
from which every dialect attributes its existence to. You follow me? If you couldn't have German, you couldn't have all these dialects of German. Does that make sense to anybody? If you took away the language, you wipe out the dialect as well. If you don't have German, you can't have Pennsylvania Deutsch, Indiana Deutsch, Mennonite Deutsch, and all this and that, because it takes its existence from the, from the language. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us here in Corinthians 13. Love is the language. Love is the language. And all of these other things, these wonderful, goodly, beautiful characteristics and emotions that our lives can emulate are merely dialects to the language. Do you see that? If you took away love, you will subsequently wipe out the source from which every dialect attributes its existence to. If you don't know love, you can never have peace. If you've never experienced love, you'll never have joy. No love, no patience. The list goes on and on and on. If you took away love, you will wipe out the source from which every dialect attributes its existence to. If you don't know love, you'll never have any of those beautiful, wonderful characteristics that, are, that our lives can emulate. So love is the language. And every other thing, good, beautiful characteristic, is merely a dialect to the language. Does that make sense? Love is the primary. That's the language. If you don't know love, you'll never have peace. If you don't have love, you'll never experience joy. And uh, love really does become a language. It does become a language and a way of communicating. And I like, this, I like this study by Gary Chapman, and some of you are probably familiar with this, where he actually defined the five love languages, like the five primary love languages that people correspond and relate to each other with. And um, I'll give them to you. The first one would be words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And most people, if all people will understand love in one of these languages, in one of these um, dialects to the language, rather. And if, if my love language, for instance, would be words of affirmation, that means I really know that I'm loved if people affirm me with words. If your love language is quality time, you'll know that people love you when they take time to spend special time and quality time with you. So it's very important that we as families, husbands, wives, Parents to children learn each other's love language, especially parent to children. Uh, learn what their love language is and then love them that way. If we don't, we'll be misfiring all of our life. If we, try to, if we try to love someone in the way that we receive love, we'll probably misfire. Uh, my wife likes to say that love is a man with dishpan hands. So her, lo- her love language must be acts of service, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> that makes sense? Mm. Love is a language. And it's words of affirmation, it's acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And I can assure you that your wives receive and understand love in one of these five ways, and vice versa as well. So discover what that is in your, in your families and so forth, and love each other through those love languages. Um, there's another saying about love, and it says that the hardness of God's love is still kinder than the softness of man. The hardness of God's love is still kinder than the softness of man. And I think about the story of King David when he had sinned and God came near and, and told David he was going to punish him. And he asked whether he would want to be punished from God or through people. And of course David said, from God, because people have no mercy. So he allowed himself to be punished by God. Okay, moving on. And some of these are just ideas. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. It, um, at least it's something to think about. I believe that love, in order to be love... In order to be a genuine and a bona fide article, love in order to exist as an entity, 
means that if, if love is to exist, if it's to be love in its most pure and its rawest form, then that means that the opposite of love is going to have to exist as well. You see, love is a choice. Love is a choice. God will never force you to love. He'll never force you to himself. There's no compulsion in love. It's a choice. But when a person is presented with a choice, he's always presented with two options. So you can love, you can accept, or you can reject. So in order for love to be an entity, that means that the opposite of love is going to have to exist as well. And you get to choose. And it slowly begins to explain some of the violence and some of the evil that goes on in the world around us. Do you follow me? Love is a choice. And people must choose. They either accept or they reject. And love, if it is to exist as an entity, as a bona fide, a genuine article, that means love must have the opposite thereof as well. It has to. So what's the opposite of love for people like us? We don't understand violence and anger and things like that. We don't participate in wars. Um, What's the opposite of love for us? And I think a lot of it would just be selfishness. For people like us, just selfishness. We choose to, uh, to serve ourselves rather than others and things like that. But uh, think about it like this. If, if you were to take love away from humanity, if we weren't able to love, we would subsequently lose our meaning. Life would have no meaning. And if you take away meaning, you take away a purpose. And when you take away a purpose, you ultimately take away God. So everything is hinged upon love. Love is what brings meaning to life. And uh, the last point to have is that love requires time. We must find the time for love. Love requires time, especially in families. There's a story about a little boy who, uh, who kept asking his daddy to help him build a clubhouse in the backyard. This is a true story. And um, the father said that he would. So now it's an established fact, right? The daddy said he would. So the little boy is just waiting for the time that his father can help him. And every day he keeps asking him, Daddy, should we start in that clubhouse today? And the father says, Well, not today. Some other time. And uh, this drug on from days to weeks to months. And every weekend when his father was home from work, the little fellow would ask him, he said, Daddy, are you ready to start in the clubhouse today? And the father always had other things to do. Uh, one, one weekend he said he had a business appointment. And the next weekend he said he had some kind of a social engagement. And the next time he said he merely had to play golf with his friends and he couldn't do it today. And so time went on. And one day something very tragic happened in the life of that little boy. It's a true story. He was crossing the street and he was hit by a car. And he was rushed to the hospital. And the father, of course, rushed to the hospital to be with his little son. And when the the little boy seen his daddy coming, uh, he tried to sit up in bed. But there was one thing that was very apparent to the two of them. And that was that the little fellow simply wasn't going to live. So he, uh, he sat up in his bed when he seen his daddy coming. And in the bravest little voice he could muster up, he said, Well, Dad, I guess now you and I never will get to build that clubhouse, will we? And then he closed his eyes and he was gone. He was gone. So we must find the time for love. If you're here today, if you're a father, if you're a mother, love it demands time. And it's absolutely essential that we take and find the time to love. That's what life is all about. So in a review, we've said that in order for, to understand the meaning of life, we have to understand the things that bring meaning to life. And uh, number one, the wonder, the amazement of life itself. A sense of belonging, a place in this world for me. Truth, what is truth, what am I here for? 
what is my destiny. The uh, idea of security brings meaning to life, secure through uh, whether it's a physical home, safe from the elements, financial, and of course our security in our eternal home as well. Uh, Forgiveness brings meaning to life. And remember, the Christian faith is the only belief system that offers that and the assurance thereof. There is no other belief system in the world that can offer forgiveness, plus the assurance of it. Relationships. And uh, it's another thing I was going to tell you is that relationships, uh, God was a being in relationship before creation. We understand that because of the Trinity. There were three in one. There was communication relationships going on. But that also, that also tells us that love preceded life. Love preceded life. Love was, was an entity before creation ever began. God is love. And if there was three, then love was capable. Three could, there was capable. Um, take that over against the, um, the Islamic worldview for just a minute. The, the Islamic faith, the Muslim faith would tell you that their God is not a trinity. He is not three, but he is a monad. He is one sole indivisible being, just one, not three. But then they'll tell you that, um, that relationships are vital to their God, vital in fact, they say that their God relates to them. He speaks to them through the prophet Muhammad and all that. But if you really think about that, if their God is just one being, that means that love could not have preceded life. It could not have preceded life. If he is just one sole being before creation, that means that he was just one being and love is mutual. You simply cannot have love if you're just one being. It's like trying to define a one-ended stick. It simply cannot be. So their God... Until he's enjoined by humanity, he's an incomplete being. Do you follow my thought? Our God is complete in and of himself because of the Trinity. There's nothing that God needs from us to ensure or enhance his existence. He exists completely, totally by himself. He doesn't need us enjoined to him to bring a meaningful existence because of the communication, the relationship, and the love that could exist in the Godhead because of the three personalities. And if, if God is just one being, that means by himself he's incomplete until he's enjoined by his imperfect humanity, which still leaves him incomplete. You follow, you follow my, <laughs> my thoughts? I wasn't part of the message. I just happened to think of that. We talk about relationships and how that love preceded life. Uh, love preceded creation. And of course, love is the last article that brings meaning to life. We said that love was the strongest force in the world because God is love. Love is a response, but it must be learned. It must always be visible, but it must always be spoken. It calls for action. It involves trust. It is willing to listen. It will share experiences. And it must be something that in our mind rises above us. It's bigger than us. It transcends all of humanity. And of course, love in order to exist as, a, as a, an entity must have the opposite thereof. And we must always find and take the time for love. So thank you for listening. It was good to be here. Um, Thanks for inviting us, and uh, may God bless you. Let's kneel together for a word of prayer.